comes from the book of Habakkuk, a small book known as one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Just a moment to get set up here. All right. Start with uh, Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as we prepare uh, to celebrate your coming, to remember it, uh, I pray that you would help us uh, prepare for you. Prepare by longing. Prepare for crying out how long. And then I pray that that you would meet our needs, that you would indeed come quickly. And fill us with hope uh, and joy in knowing that the things that we have not seen shall be seen uh, more fully than we can imagine, Lord. Open our eyes, soften our hearts this morning, uh, that the blind may see, that the deaf may hear, and the leap may the, the lame may leap for joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, for you a little bit like me, that, uh, that sermon text sort of strikes you. Uh, like a bolt of lightning coming out of, out of the rest of the worship service. It almost seems to not fit. Uh, so give me a second to work back to the text, if you will. We'll, we'll get back to it in a second. Uh, I'll start by saying this. The holidays uh, are upon us, and that's a time for eating and celebrating and rejoicing, which is good for me because I love to eat. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I went to uh, a choral concert uh, with uh, Joel, our worship leader, who's in the Oahu Choral Society, and they performed uh, a beautiful piece of music downtown. And then afterwards, the four of us, Joel and his wife Emily and Susie and I, all went out to have uh, dinner together to celebrate um, after the concert. And Joel uh, entered us, uh, introduced us to uh, Brasserie Duven. Did I say that right? It's, uh, however you say it, it's an awesome French restaurant across the street from uh, the Hawaii Theater. Uh, it was one of those restaurants where as soon as, I, as soon as we showed up at the door, I knew that this was going to be uh, a good experience, that the maitre d' immediately took us back through the restaurant, through all the tables, and seated us at a little alcove in the back uh, with a table uh, shaped uh, just like the altar, just big enough for four of us, and we were seated up a little bit just like this, sort of looking out over the restaurant. Uh, and if you've been there, you know that it's also open to the sky. It has this feeling of being like an open alley restaurant, except it's all enclosed by buildings, but there's plants climbing up the walls, and uh, the stars overhead, and little umbrellas, and candles. Uh, and then they take you the menu, and it's one of those menus where you read the first thing, and you think to yourself, that, that's what I'm going to get. But then you're like, well, I might as well keep reading. So you read the second thing, and you're like, no, no, I'm going to get that instead. That every item on the menu, just you read the list of ingredients, and you're like, oh, that, that sounds awesome. So no sooner had we ordered than uh, one of the servers brought to us a basket with a soft cloth. And inside the cloth was a warm, moist loaf of French bread. 
all nicely sliced. And with it on the table, olive oil and balsamic vinegar uh, for dipping sauce. And I don't know about you guys, but I am one of those people that could not survive on the Atkins diet for more than a couple hours. Uh, I am all about the carbs. And uh, so we jumped into the bread with relish, and uh, the loaf was gone like that. So the waiter came by, and he said, wow, would you guys like a second loaf? Yes. Uh, So the second loaf came, and the third loaf came, and the fourth loaf came. And uh, as I was chewing away on the fourth loaf, I finally remembered back in the depths of my mind that I was once told by someone who's uh, much more experienced with fine restaurants than me that you should not eat very much of the bread that they bring out to you at the beginning of the meal. He actually put it this way. He said, they feed you the bread so that you think when you leave that you got a real meal. He said, make them feed you the real food. And uh, whatever the truth of that, I can definitely tell you that at the end of the evening, uh, we left having consumed a lot of French bread and that the finely seasoned, perfectly cooked pork tenderloin left in a white box to be consumed out of the refrigerator cold the next morning. Uh, Make them feed you the real food. Uh, If you are a Christian or you're visiting with us this morning investigating the claims of Christianity, uh, you should know that Christianity works like that, Uh, that it's a life of joy, but really it's a life of waiting for the real food. Uh, theologians have a fancy term for this. They call it the already and the not yet. That many, many aspects of the Christian life are already, but also not yet. Uh, our, our salvation. Jesus already died on the cross for our sins, fully taking care of them. We are fully accepted in his sight and well-loved. That has already happened but we do not yet fully experience being embraced at his side and knowing physically and experientially how much he cares for us. We do not yet fully live out of the confidence that could come from knowing that we've been set free in that way. Or uh, take our sanctification, which is a fancy Christian term that really just means growing up, becoming more mature, more the way we should be. Uh, If you're a Christian, that process has already begun. That you are already uh, more caring, more sensitive, uh, more holy than you once were, um, but you're not there yet. Uh, We still struggle and fight with besetting sins. That's why we have a confession every morning. Uh, The already and not yet is uh, sort of like the process of becoming a local Hawaiian. Uh, I already have an 808 phone number, a Hawaii driver's license, and if I check into a hotel in Waikiki, they think I'm Kama'aina. Uh, but I uh, cannot yet surf, although that's in process. Uh, and I will never be able to tell you what high school I graduated from uh, or many of the other things that, that come with being here. I will never be uh, fully local. Um, it's the same way with uh, God's sovereignty expressed in the world. Uh, If you have spent very much time in Presbyterian churches at all, you know that we love to talk about God's sovereignty, how he is in control of everything and has had a plan since before the beginning of time. Jesus says that the hairs on our head are numbered, that we know that not one of them can fall without God's will. 
Paul says in Ephesians that God had a plan for everything that transpired since before the beginning of time. And we love knowing that because if God isn't sovereign, that means that, uh, that somehow things are out of control, that God is like a, a grandparent who, who means well and would love to sort of fix all the problems in your life, but just, just can't do it. And then life becomes uh, chaotic and insecure because we never really know what's going to happen and we have to watch out for ourselves because God's not really in control. Oh, sovereignty, sovereignty is important. Uh, we believe in sovereignty. But there's a form of uh, a view of the sovereignty of God um, that I would call an over-realized view uh, that says that everything that happens now is the way that it should, that everything always works out for good. There's no bad. Uh, and I would say that, that that's a misunderstanding of, of the already and not yet. Uh, Jesus says in John 12 that, uh, he's, this is before his crucifixion, he says, look, now, now is the time when the rule of this world will be driven out. Now is the time for judgment. So it's already happened. But yet, in Revelation, which is a book that talks about things that have yet to happen at the end of the age, we see the martyrs, those who died because they were Christians, standing before the throne of God, crying out, How long? How much longer? Until our blood will be avenged. So that tells us that there's, there's something yet for us to see, that we don't yet see God's will fully realized in the world. Uh, if you take a look at the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, uh, you read this. Sorry, I'm going to be flipping around a little bit this morning. Uh, 8.21. Creation itself longs to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, so we know that there, there is something not right, something not fully seen or expressed in God's sovereignty. Uh, James 1, 13 through 15, uh, tells us this about the way, about God's character. Just a sec. says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Uh, what this passage is telling us is that God is not the author of sin. So, we have this tension that we see sin in the world, but we know that God is not the author of sin. First uh, John says that there's no darkness in God, that he is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So if we live saying, oh, this bad thing happened, but it's not really bad, because I know that God will work it out for something good, we're really we're shortchanging him. We are disallowing um, the world, the broken state that it's in. Uh, I'm going to suggest this morning that that is, that's the French bread. Uh, that, is, that is the meal that seems satisfying, uh, but one that we should put aside and wait for the real meal. In fact, I think it's more like a glass of water and saltine crackers. Uh, there's comfort to be found there, but I want us to see 
a greater comfort this morning. So we're going to take a look at two things. First, we're going to take a look at, at the saltine crackers themselves, uh, what I would call uh, this over-realized view of God's sovereignty. And then we'll take a look at the meal itself, what, what we are promised. Uh, we're going to get back to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk is speaking in the time of the kings. Uh, so King David came, and then his son Solomon, and they both passed away, and king after king after king. And so it's the time of the nation of Israel and this long lineage of kings. And if you've ever read the book of Kings, you sort of see there's this downward trend that sometimes things get better and sometimes they get worse, but by and large, things are not going well in the kingdom. And uh, there's good reason to suspect that Habakkuk was prophesying during the reign of Manasseh. King Manasseh. So we read this uh, from 2 Kings 21. This is from the beginning of the chapter, if you want to follow along with me. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, done and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his own son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. This is, uh, this is a dark time in Israel, that things that should not be done are happening in Israel. The king himself has sacrificed his own son on the altar. And so God responds by sending his prophets. So if you keep that context in mind, hear now again the beginning of Habakkuk's complaint the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The first thing I want you to see is that Habakkuk is rightly calling evil what it is. Uh, and this is the first thing for us to do in preparing for Advent and preparing for the king, is to point out what is wrong, to call evil what it is, to not shade it or hide it or say, this isn't so bad, there's, there's something good here that he calls out. He says, this is violence. Justice is not going forth. Uh, Habakkuk, if you look throughout the book, does so, um, I believe, from a stance of faith, that he's not complaining to God because he doesn't have faith, but precisely because he does. Um, at the end of his second complaint, at the beginning of chapter 2, he finishes complaining, and then he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself in the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. So he has the stance of, look, I'm going to complain because I have faith. 
And then I'm going to expect, I'm going to stand and wait with expectation that you're going to do something about it. Uh, We see also in his complaints, he peppers them with statements about God's sovereignty. Later in chapter 1, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O God, my Holy One? Uh, So he appeals to God's good character in contrast with what he sees in the world. Uh, I want you to see that God responds to Habakkuk's complaint, not by rebuking him for complaining, but actually by agreeing with him. In in Habakkuk chapter 2, after Habakkuk is finished complaining, God jumps in and he says, Hey, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people will plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. God is condemning the same things that Habakkuk is condemning. And finally, uh, he says, The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon you. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. So he's, he's promising, yes, I see what you see, and I'm going to do something about it, that I'm as, as every bit as mad as you are. Uh, the other thing I want you to see is that the Lord agrees with Habakkuk that his response has not yet come. That Habakkuk complains, and the Lord says, this is the beginning of chapter 2, uh, verse 3, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And then we hear this verse. Behold, he's speaking, he's doing a contrast here. He first he talks about those who, who do not have frustration, who do not have an eye to justice. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him. But of the man who waits for God's justice, he says, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, if that verse seems a little bit familiar, Paul quotes it a number of times in the New Testament. He actually uses it as the theme of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he says, Look, the righteousness of God has been revealed, for uh, the righteousness of God comes down, and the righteous shall live by his faith. So in the very DNA, even of the book of Romans, Paul is drawing back to this, and he's saying, Look, part, part of the very essence of the faith is to have a holy discontent about the ills of the world and to live by faith expecting them to happen. Uh, Habakkuk is not alone in the Bible in complaining this way. Abraham receives wonderful promises from God and then comes back to him and says, you've not done what you said. How, what sign will you give me that I can know that your promises are fulfilled? Uh, David, the great king of the Old Testament, the writer of the Psalms, no one complains more than David. Uh, all the psalms of crying out and lamentation. I think David is probably the one who invented the phrase, How long, O Lord? Uh, and, and wore it out. Uh, Job has the same status. Uh, he complains and says, Look, this is not my fault. And in the end of the book of Job, God says, You were right. Uh, and finally, in the New Testament, Paul, uh, patron saint of Presbyterians everywhere, uh, in the book of Second Corinthians, says... I, do, I want you to know, Corinthians, that we despaired even to the point of despairing of life itself. And then he quotes David from Psalm 116, where David says, I believed, and therefore I spoke, 
about the calamity that has come upon me. That it's not unbelief again, but it's precisely because of belief that he has the boldness to complain and expect that God will do something about it. Uh, Now, some of you may be thinking, Nathaniel, what about, there's a verse somewhere that says that, um, that all things work together for good for those who love God. Uh, And that is a verse I've drawn much comfort from. If you want to take a look at it, it's in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.28. Paul writes this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't want to totally take this away from you. This, this is true, that we know that God's purpose is going to be worked out. But you've got to take a look at the context this verse comes in. If you back up in the chapter, back to 8.18, Paul writes this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's not saying, we won't suffer. Everything's going to be awesome. He's saying, no, we're suffering. But the awesomeness is coming. Oh, and by the way, the awesomeness is going to be so much more awesome than the suffering. We won't even worry about the suffering at that point. That's the point he's driving at. But that, that he's, you've got to leave room for the suffering of the present time. And then he goes on, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the redemption that's coming. That's the passage I quoted earlier. Uh, when, we, uh, when something bad happens in our lives or on our island... And we jump straight to saying, but I know God is sovereign. This is going to work out even better. Uh, I think that we are, we're shortchanging God. Uh, we're feasting on, on the saltine crackers uh, and the juice. That it makes us feel better in that we know that um, it gives us confidence that good is coming. But it's, it's a smaller good. It makes good out of some of the dark things that, that happen. Um, it's a little bit like the controversy that's come up in Penn State recently. Uh, and uh, especially from that part of the world, you know that Penn State's whole aura is sort of this squeaky clean, beautiful, everyone's the way they should be. What a great school. Uh, and so to have a scandal come out like this is devastating for the school. And we don't know all the details. I'm not passing judgment on anyone. But from what we hear, it certainly sounds like they knew that sexual abuse was occurring on campus as part of university activities. And they chose to not respond so that they could preserve the university's image. And when we respond to God's pain, really, in a sense, we're doing the same thing. We're calling evil not evil. And saying, well, God will work it out for good. If we just look at it from the right frame, this will be great. Really, we need a coach who's going to say, absolutely not. This will not happen in Penn State. Uh, And I know for many of us that if we, um, if you hear this message... Uh, and I've been through some of this myself, that what's going to happen is that things are actually going to get a lot more difficult. If you begin to call evil for what it is, then that means that you've experienced evil. And that there's evil in the world around us. Uh, from things small that we regard as everyday things, deployments. The world was not made for deployments. Our husbands should not leave us for that long. That was not the intent. Uh, it was not the intent for businesses 
to defraud you and one another with false financial dealings. Uh, The world was not intended for us to live in a place where property is so expensive that a person working a hard blue-collar job earning an hourly wage cannot afford to even rent a house or an apartment. We were not made to live in financial stress like this. Um, From there on to the serious things that we all know are wrong. Um, Sexual abuse and violence. Uh, The women's study recently finished going through this book called Through His Eyes, God's Perspective on Women in the Bible by Jaron Bars. And uh, there's a chapter in the book on the rape of Tamar. Tamar was uh, one of David's daughters, King David, and she was raped by her half-brother. And Jerem writes this, We do not have to pretend that such behavior as the rape of Tamar is good from some perspective. That if we turn it to the light in just the right way, we will be able to see, Now I see it! When we look carefully enough, we see the violence done to Tamar suffers the violence Tamar suffers actually works out for the best. This rape is a spiritual lesson intended for Tamar's long-term benefit. We are to say no such thing. Rather, we are to say that rape is inherently evil. There is nothing good, no matter how we look at it, about such an act of violence and wickedness towards a man's sister or his wife or his daughter. This is a comforting truth. I do not have to look at examples of human wickedness and pretend that they are somehow good. Uh, And uh, for those of you who experienced a conversion at some point, um, you probably at that time felt a sense of desperation about the way things were in your life or the way things were in your world. And I want to invite you back, invite you back to the gospel where there's freedom to call evil what it is and to long out for redemption, that this Sunday is about preparing for Advent. And I'm suggesting that preparing for Advent means entering into the question, how long, O Lord, to to leave off covering over our wounds with cheap grace. That when we say, oh, God is sovereign, it'll work out for good, I think it seems like we're protecting God. But really, I think we are protecting ourselves that we are using an over-realized view of God's sovereignty to protect ourselves from pain. And the frustrating thing is that however good God is, he has not decided that we will be free from pain yet. And so perhaps the place to start is with frustration, like Habakkuk. Why do I cry out to you, violence, and you will not save? That is the starting point of Advent, that we need a king who will come set everything right. You see, if we disengage that hurt and that need, that frustration with what's happened in our lives or even the island we see around us, we disengage our excitement about Advent itself. Because if everything works out for good now, there's no need for Jesus to have come when he did, and there's no need for him to come again. If I'm going to sort of invite you back into a world of holy anger at evil, I don't want to leave you without the promise that's coming. We've taken a look at the crackers, uh, the cheap grace, the sort of, oh, it'll work out for good, it'll be okay. I want you to take a look at the real meal. The first thing I want you to see, and this is, this is not going to start out being comforting, so, so hang with me here. Uh, Habakkuk cries out to God, and this is God's response in Habakkuk 1.5. 
Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. God's response is, I see what you're seeing, and I'm going to send judgment. That's my answer. I'm going to send judgment like you've never thought. And so one of the things we're looking for in Advent is judgment. But this is not... Hold on, don't, don't be afraid for a second. This is not um, a judgment we need to fear. This is a judgment we need. This is a judgment from a God who looks on the wrongs of the world and says, no, this is going to stop, and I'm going to clear it away. That's what Jesus does when he comes. He says, look, now I'm going to drive out the ruler of this world. Now is the time for judgment. That's his good news. Habakkuk could not have known the sort of judgment he was looking for and seeking, God said that it was going to come shortly in the form of the Chaldeans, um, bringing justice to bear. But the New Testament writers seem to think that what Habakkuk was really looking for was the coming of Christ. Because that same passage, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, that's quoted by Paul in the book of Acts when he's preaching one of his first sermons about Christ. He says, look, be astounded. This is what has happened. God came to earth and he's going to set everything right. Um, you can't talk about things being set right uh, without heading to the book of Revelation. So we're going to take a look at a couple passages here before we close. The first one is in Revelation chapter 1. When we talk about Advent and longing for the coming of Christ, longing for justice, uh, we're longing for the first coming of Christ, but we're also longing for the second coming of Christ. See, this is the already and not yet, that he already came, but not yet fully. We are waiting for his full reign to come into effect. Uh, John begins the book of Revelation by taking a look at Christ in a vision. John says this, uh, I'm going to begin in Revelation 1.12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, this is Jesus, clothed with a long white robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. That John has for the first time seen Jesus, the Christ himself, in his full glory, shining with such power and goodness and holiness and justice that he can't even look at it because it's like the sun shining in your face. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, listen to this, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
he comes not only in power, but he comes and he says, fear not. I am for you. I am finally come to set everything right. To answer all the cries you've been crying to me all of these years. I said before that we heard the cries of the martyrs crying out to him, how long? Uh, I'm going to skip forward to Revelation chapter 11. And we hear this about the same Christ. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world, that's sort of everything around us, has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, for you have taken your power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth." that this is what the saints in heaven at the end of the age are praising, that this magnificent Jesus with his golden sash and white hair and shining face who says, don't fear, finally comes, and then, then he takes up his power fully and reigns. Uh, let me come back to the, the Jaron Bars book one more time, uh, just to emphasize how helpful this is for us. He says again of Tamar, This story of a ruined life shows the reality of a broken world. There are people like Tamar whose stories are thoroughly miserable. People whose lives are made desolate by the sins of others. That is how the book sums up her life. Quote, a desolate woman. There are tears in some of our lives for which there will be no resolution until the coming kingdom of God. There is mourning for which there is no end here. There is pain for which there is no true respite now. And that is why the book of Revelation expresses God's word to us as it does in 21, 2 through 5. He goes goes to Revelation 2. Revelation is so helpful. And then he quotes this passage from Revelation. This is from the end. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I want to re-invite us to this hope, this Advent, uh, that our joy is a joy founded in a holy frustration, a holy anger, that is accompanied by a holy expectation that God will act. That preparation for Advent means, of its very nature, looking around and dwelling and contemplating the things that are not right, and saying, these must be set right, and knowing that that will happen. Coming here Christmas Eve, knowing that King Jesus has come to set things right. Uh, Friends, I love America, and I think that democracy is a great thing. 
But the biblical form of government is monarchy. And what we need most is a righteous king like this who will finally come and sweep away evil and bring justice. A righteous king who also will touch us on the shoulder and say, fear not. That, that is what we're preparing for. And uh, I'll close with this thought that we have uh, decided in this Advent season that we're going to move all the prayers towards the back of the service. And I was delighted to find out that Habakkuk did the same thing. That uh, he complained to God for two chapters, and God responded. They had this back-and-forth discourse, which I think is extremely healthy. God finished his response, and then we read this in chapter 3, the final chapter of Habakkuk. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigenoth, which is probably like in the key of C. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known that on pondering the darkness of the world, on hearing God's promise for his coming redemption, Habakkuk turned to prayer. Uh, And that's what I want for us to do now. Uh, We're going to pray for the Jews since they're leaving, but also uh, for this to be a time of longing for restoration, for crying out, How long, O Lord? with expectation knowing that he will act and he will heal all wounds and set everything to right. Um, I'll invite uh, Todd up now to lead us in that prayer.